you might hear this week's book title, Pimp, The Story of My Life, and wonder what pimping has to do with you. You may be inclined to skip the episode, but before you do, ask yourself, what can you learn from a pimp? I mean, now I'm like in the stage where I want to learn about the world and the dark side of the world and, and the wisdom that's there on the aspect of life that we never want to look at. This week, an exploration of the sexual economy of the Northern United States from the 1920s to 1950s, the complicated sociological and psychological foundations that led to its flourishing, and the many ways the legacy of slavery, racialized sexual fantasies, human exploitation, and sociological violence create underground economies that lead to physical and psychological harm. In these systems, how can we be redeemed? These and many other topics are the focus of today's dialogue about Iceberg Slim's autobiographical novel and memoir, Pimp, The Story of My Life. I'm Keaton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Edwin Cantu. Through committee work a few years ago, Edwin and I sparked a profoundly intellectual friendship rooted in the deep discussion of ideas, philosophy, music, art, and differing worldviews. Edwin is an intense thinker, wildly curious, and deeply committed to personal learning, improvement, and community. Anyone would be fortunate to spend even one hour engaged in picking his brain and hearing his perspectives, as you'll learn today. We recorded this conversation in July of 2020. Before we begin, a note for our listeners. This episode contains some discussion of sexual, physical, and racial violence. One of the things that I asked you to think about and that I've been intrigued about now, this is going to be the fourth episode, is just having people talk about the history of their reading life and how they think about their reading life. We've talked about this before, so I'll be curious to see how you sort of reflect on the history of reading for you. Yeah. Um, I'll start with like the very beginning. So um, as like, we've talked about this before and stuff. So being um, like born to two parents who don't speak English, like, Um, the big, once we moved here and, um, learning, like learning how to just speak English, uh, my mom had bought me like these case of books and they were like Disney books. So they were like Disney sponsored books or something. And she would like make me sit with her. And it felt like at, when I was a kid, it probably like we stopped reading at like eight or something, but it felt like I would be reading until like 11 PM. Like it just felt like I was reading really late with her. But she would like make me pick up like a Toy Story book or like a Buzz Lightyear adventure or some like Disney Channel book. Yeah. And there was like uh, different levels and stuff. So there was like easy books, medium books and then hard books. And typically she'd make me she'd let me read like two easy books. And then the rest of the week I had to read like two hard books. And um, I remember reading and I was like learning how to speak English. And obviously like she understood a little bit, but not much but she would notice like when I was like reading incorrectly or if I was saying a word, like I was mispronouncing a word cause I would lower my tone and she could just tell by like body mm-hmm. language and tonal. She was like, read that sentence. Like, esa, esa palabra otra again. like read the, read the word again. And I would be like, ah, all right. So it felt like she could just read my mind and when, no, when I was like unsure, but that was when I was a kid and I was like learning how to speak English. Now was this and, before you went to school or was this, in conjunction with what you were learning in school? 
a little bit of both. So it was like a little bit beforehand. And then once I started in school, I went to like an all English school. So I was like really quiet for the first like month or two or something, just cause I, I couldn't communicate with anybody. And then uh, just to kind of like further my process along, she would give me like read these books and stuff. So a little bit of both. And then uh, fast forwarding a bit to like high school, I wasn't a reader. Uh, I was like really into sports and stuff. So like anytime I had like English homework or something like that, like I could, I could think and I could like understand story plots and stuff like that. But I would typically just like spark notes things or talk to my friends who had the class before me. And then it wasn't really until I graduated high school that I started like deep diving into books and stuff. Um, it was mostly based off of like my, a recommendation from my older brother. He had, he, my, I have an older brother and he's like four years older. And um, yeah, once I graduated, I was just kind of sitting on like just relaxing, doing 18 year old or like 17 year old things. And uh, he was telling me, he's like, hey, once you get into high school, you're not going to have too much time. Or once you get into college, you're not going to have too much time to like better yourself. You're going to have just, you're going to be like loaded with things to do. And so my brother told me, he's like, hey, make sure you utilize this summer by like reading. Like you should read this book. And um, the first book, I sometimes get them mixed up. I don't remember what the exact first book was because I think of two books when I think of like that summer. And one of them, I think the first one was Mastery by Robert Greene. And um, he deep dives into like historical examples of people that became masters at their craft. And it's not like, it's not the typical person who does like the 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell's like 10,000 hour rule and all that stuff. It was it was very different. Like they they obviously put in a lot of time, but then they also picked up on like social cues and little things here and there that I had come across in my past that like made sense. And I was like, I get it. Like the path to mastery is like a long game. And as like a 17 year old who before I went to school, I wanted to be like in the Hall of Fame for baseball. And so I always had like this long term greatness idea. And this book kind of like brought it to real life. And after high school, I knew I was going to play college baseball. So I was like on a, I was like in limbo and reading this book taught me that like, no matter what path you choose, you can always strive for long-term greatness. So then I had like the mindset, I was ready to choose the next thing. And then it just so happened that the next book my brother told me to read or like recommended was the Steve Jobs biography. And like as a 17 year old kid to read a story about someone who's very like imperfect, he had a lot of flaws, but who did, who created something that like everyone uses. He like, since I was 13, I saw people have like iPhones. And so I read the book about one guy, well, a lot of people, but mostly one guy changed the face of our interactions, our, our, our tool it's, it's almost like Steve Jobs gave us fire. Like that was the sort of in, innovation that like was iPhones and then what all it connected us to. There was also obviously like a lot of infrastructure, Google tech, all that stuff. But I read his story and then realized just, yeah, business opens up a lot of doors for creative collaboration. And then just, you can create something like in the real world and it can impact people and people can use it. And so that was the second book I read that summer. And then from then I deep dove into books. Like I, I had a scholarship to go to school and, and like we've talked about before. And so most of my money was spent on my education. Like I would go out here and there, but I would say no to a lot of things just because I wanted to sit down with like a good book. And, um, well, that's, that's one of the stories I really want you to tell because that's one of the things that bonded us many years ago was you kind of t talking about, I mean, I seem to remember, I feel like that summer, a couple summers ago, when we started going out and having lunches, you were telling me this story about your college years and how you would forego going to bars or hanging out with girls or, you know, all this kind of stuff in order to read these books. And I was like, that's when I told you about this podcast idea, you know? I noticed like, my growth wasn't accelerating when I was spending a lot of time being like a regular college student. It was a very slow growth. My classes 
I wanted to take investments my freshman year, but they told me based on my credit hours and prerequisites, I wasn't going to be able to take that class into my junior year. And so I'm an internet kid. I have YouTube. I've been like, I have information available to me. I have, I've always had it. So I didn't wait. And then once I realized the things that I could learn on YouTube, on podcasts, on everything, um, the people that I was around in the events that were around me seemed less valuable, maybe not valuable. They seemed less likely to help accelerate my growth. And so even though I did want to like hang out and um, my girls would ask me to hang out or parties and all this stuff. Once you go to a certain amount of parties or like once you go on like a certain amount of dates, you get kind of like a like used used to it. Like meeting someone new is always really nice, but the time invested to meet someone new to build a solid relationship was very time consuming. And the rate of return that I was getting in my books and being able to explore ideas, I just felt like I was learning so much in this avenue that I decided that I would just say no to a lot of things and explore and and chase like my own curiosity as opposed to what I was being told like I should chase. And then, yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why like we kind of built this friendship was we both kind of have that curiosity, just way of viewing the world of wanting to understand things. And yeah. So how did you, I mean, what were, what besides these investment books, what else were you reading in college that was happening outside of the confines of your classroom environment? Uh, at, as you know, college is just a time that you question everything. So um, I remember one of the like important books that I read was Man's Search for Meaning, like Viktor Frankl. Oh yeah, of course. Just the perspective of um, a psychologist experiencing the Holocaust from, I mean, actually experiencing it and then analyzing, using his field of study, analyzing what was going on in the present moment. And then he wrote a book for the rest of history to understand what really happened and then at the most basic human level like what it is that we need because he saw the deprivation of an entire race of people and he noticed like there's something about meaning as humans so that was a big book uh i read quite a bit of philosophy just because i mean i was trying to figure things out and i think it's better to like read the best ideas of history as opposed to what's popular in your time period like it's better to learn about timeless ideas. So I read Marcus Aurelius, like Meditations was a really big book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read a lot of business books. So there's an author named Ryan Holiday who um, writes on stoicism and business and media manipulation. Um, listened to a podcast and then eventually read his books of uh, author named Tim Ferriss. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a variety of things. You know, I'm interested in this idea of the pathway or the, or the, you know, the rhizomatic kind of the ways that these books and these ideas even get connected. So for you, the part that's always been interesting to me is that you started out reading all this stuff about investment and business, but you ended up in these areas like, yeah, philosophy, you know, cultural studies, history. How did you get from investment to philosophy? for example? I would say the idea of investment, going back to that rate of return, right? Um, I I went to school and I was studying entrepreneurship for the professional skill set, understanding how businesses work. And once I felt I had a decent grasp of how things work, obviously, my curiosity took me elsewhere. And so um, I was really curious as to like, not just how to get a good return on investment, but like how to be a good person. Or, um, which can touch a little bit on the book, but I was curious as to essentially how to live a good life. You said you'd never ever break down, but here I am sweeping pieces off of the ground. You said you'd never ever play. So how did you find this book that you chose for this week's discussion, which is Iceberg Slim's Pimp, The Story of My Life? 
Yeah, so uh, kind of going back to the studying culture and uh, outside of the box kind of like interest growing up, and I actually have it next to me. Growing up, there was one show that was like a show that me and my friends shouldn't have been watching, but it felt too important to not watch after we saw a couple episodes. Hmm. So, uh, Chappelle. The show. Dave Chappelle show. Uh huh. Dave Chappelle and the comedy that he was doing, I've heard people mention that he's a philosopher who happens to be funny. Hmm. And so a lot of his comedy sketches, there was deep underlying human truth, but he had to make it comedic. If not, it would be too abrasive. It'd be too much for us. And we can't, we, as like the quote is like, you can't handle the truth. Mm-hmm. So you make a joke out of it and then it's easier to digest. So he was always someone that seems really intelligent, really wise. And one of his specials, um, he was discussing like the whole media, like force trying to destroy him. And he said like, I can't tell you what goes on in like Hollywood or I can't tell you what goes on behind closed doors in these media meetings, but there's a book written in the 20s or 30s from a pimp that describes the story perfectly of what happened to me in my career and when you go up against power. And so he recommended this book. And I mean, now I'm like in the stage where I want to learn about the world and the dark side of the world and and the wisdom that's there on the aspect of life that we never want to look at. And it just so happened that it came from somebody who I just respected like the craft of who I respected their intellect. And so it kind of came at this perfect time and studying business and capitalism, you can see why this book is like the dark side that we never really talk about in business school or address in the media, but it's real. And there's wisdom, there's an, there's wisdom, there's intelligence, and there's insight there that you're likely not going to find anywhere else. It's just amazing to me as I was preparing that this book continues to be one of the books that has been a bestseller since it was published in 1969. It is still to today, July 28th, 2020. It is still number one on Amazon in the categories of philosophy of good and evil, R&B soul and artist biographies, and it's number 11 in crime and criminal biographies. So it is, and it has Iceberg Slim himself as a writer went on to, this was his first book, which is kind of an autobiographical, some people call it an autobiographical novel, some people call it a memoir. Um, You know, we could tussle about that if you want to. But he went on to like, write many other books, novels and fiction. He went on to have a music career and a movie career. I mean, he's fascinating. And so I read this piece in The New Yorker from just a few years ago by Robin D.G. Kelly. I'll put this in the show notes. That talks about how the first line is, I'm always amazed by how well-read people don't know who Iceberg Slim is. And here I am, a well-read person who had never heard of Iceberg Slim, never read the book. But I think the book is fascinating and should be read by everyone um, for all kinds of reasons that I want to get into. But I, I guess since you sort of started talking about this, maybe maybe we can talk about the way that the book handles the subject of capitalism. So obviously, um, like being a pimp or the pimp game, like, it's very manipulative. It's very like just harmful in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. But yet it's an industry that has always been around. It's essential. It's essential to all of us. It's a human need. Like sex is one of the driving forces. If you want to go Freud, right? Like whether it's the main driving force or just a large force within humans. And so the fact that there's a business model that's created from this essential need and in the way that it's just, like it exploits, it's it's harmful to, again, it's harmful to every aspect of society, yet it's, it's 
It's driven by the same things that almost all businesses are driven by greed, a hunger. And as like, and obviously like there's a way that you can describe hum, hunger as like a positive or a negative. And greed is obviously like one thing that's always viewed as like a sin or like um, just a negative drive, but just the, the business, the, the business model that is ex exploiting men's need for women in a way that you manipulate women, you trick men, like the, the cons that they were pulling. What I was really, really intensely interested in because the book takes place in the twenties, thirties and forties, and it takes place in the North is not just that it's talking about capitalism, but it's talking about racial capitalism. And there is a huge understory in this book about racial capitalism. And there is this whole undercurrent, Edwin, in the book about what happened to African-Americans who went to the North uh, after slavery. And there is a way that the book can be read as what happens in the cities of the North is no different than the reproduction of the slave system in the South, except with, in this case, black men in control of the women. Because when you think, I mean, there are these scenes in the book you know, these scenes of where the pimps are getting together with the other pimps and selling off their women, right? They trade women. Women leave one pimp and go to a different pimp. It's, it's clearly about the selling of the body. It's clearly about control of the female body in all kinds of problematic ways. It's also about the way that for Black men, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, many of them see pimping as the only way to get out of this, um, to get out of this stranglehold that the capitalist system has put on them. One of my quotes that I pulled out from page 99 about, this is Iceberg Slim talking, okay? He says, quote, I felt powerful and beautiful. I thought I was still black in the white man's world. My hope to be important and admired could be realized even behind this black stockade. It was simple. Just pimp my ass off and get a ton of scratch. Everybody in both worlds kissed your ass black and blue if you had flash and front. Page 99. So this idea of pimping as a way out of the economic structure that black men found themselves in, it is one theory of the book. I want to talk about uh, some of the sociological issues that are kind of, it might be like social psychology. Particularly, I want to talk about what gets people into this business to begin with. It's not just the desire to be on the top in terms of money. There are, the book seems to suggest there are real reasons why this happens. Some of it is about trauma that people experience at an early age, physical violence. Iceberg Slim, for example, you know, he has sexual trauma at the age of three. His babysitter is making him pleasure her. This is on page two of the book, two or three of the book, right? It's, it, it smacks you right in the face. My, my earliest memory is of pleasuring my babysitter. I mean, what? Like that is a sociological problem, right? A lot of the women in the book have these kinds of early psychological traumas that happen to them. Their fathers rape them. Other types of things happen. And then 
there's the whole thing with sweet that I think we just have to talk about. You know, these, these pages of the book, to me, I think it's pages um, 138 to 139, are potentially some of the most important pages in the entire book. And this is, by the way, this is not justification, okay, for what any of these, none of this is justification for what they do. But if you read the book from a social, psychological, or historical perspective, which I think is an appropriate way to read the text, you understand the forces that led people into this kind of lifestyle. Why does Sweet get into this business to begin with? Did you have the certain uh, quote that you want to start on? Well, I think on page 138, there's, you know, this is um, Glasstop is talking to Iceberg Slim about why Sweet is the way that he is. And before this in the narrative, you get a whole, you get these little lines, these little snippets that um, Sweet really hates white people. And part of the reason that he's in the game is because he hates white people. But you don't understand the dynamics of why he hates white people, right? So Glasstop says to Iceberg Slim on page 138, you know, he's sick in the head. He's got an insane hate for the whole white race. Then he starts talking about why this happened. And I'll just read a little bit of this uh, for people. And I'm just letting people know that it's, um, it's violent, okay? He was a crumb crusher of seven down in Georgia when the white folks first poisoned his skull. His mammy was jet black and beautiful. The pecker woods for miles around were aching to lay her. The son of a wealthy plantation owner that Sweet's old man had sharecropped for waylaid her on the way to a spring. He punched her out, tore her clothes off, and socked it into her. She was naked and crying when she got back to her shack. The story goes on to talk about how Sweet's father went to find this man that had raped his mother and took him out into the woods and beat him um, and thought that he beat him dead, but he actually did not kill the white man who raped his mother. And a white mob comes and takes his father out, um, kills the father, lynches him. I mean, it's, it's a lynching is what ends up happening on page 139. And, you know, this is on page 139, you know, Sweet saw the whole mob rape his mother. So from a historical perspective and from a trauma perspective and a social psychological perspective, Sweet is painted as this character who grew up in a segregated South, a post-Civil War, but still sharecropping, racially unjust from an economic perspective south okay his mother gets raped by a white man his father tries to kill the white man his father is lynched his mother is gang raped by these men who come to lynch his father and he is left parentless essentially on this farm in georgia so he, Sweet ends up escaping to Chicago and decides that he's going to use black women in particular, but also white women against the white man in this economic game of pimping. So he, he recreates violence against women by making them turn into prostitutes. But there is a... I found those pages very disturbing and I found them to be probably historically accurate in terms of things that actually happen to people in real life. People in the South watched their mothers get raped by white men, 
black men in the South, watch this, black husbands, they, they often had no recourse. And so Sweet's kind of plan is to learn the rules of the game and to try to turn it against the white man to get his money. That's the theory. That's the way the story is told. So I don't know. I just, when I was reading these parts of the book about the violence, the sexual trauma, the ties to historical economic structures, I mean, that whole thing about the sharecropping, the economic system, that's why I say you have to read it as a racial capitalist book because what's happening in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s in Chicago in terms of the pimping economy is tied to the sharecropping economy of the South. And there are these brilliant lines, these brilliant economic lines in the book about, you know, the North is no different than the South from an economic standpoint for Black people. It doesn't matter if you're in the North or the South. The white man is essentially screwing you over. And we have to try to figure out within that system how we're going to be able to survive as Black people. And this is one way that they decided to survive. So anyway, I just threw a lot at you. I don't know. But it's just like, for me, it's, it's an incredibly important book for that reason alone. Just for that reason. Yeah, I remember when I read that section, I definitely did not give it justice the way I read it. I, I didn't sit with it. I kind of just, it gave me a little bit of the backstory of the, the motivation of Sweet, of why he was so driven, because he had more than enough. He didn't need more women in his stable. He didn't need more money. But yet something still drove him. And in the book, they mention like, oh, he pimps harder on the white whores. And yes. it shows that dynamic of it was never really about the money and the flash with Sweet. It was it was that reconciliation of what had what happened to him, his family, everything. And that was his only way of of feeling like he had some sort of power over what might have happened in his youth. And I didn't read it that way the first time, but hearing hearing how you read it, like, yeah, that he always had more than enough. You don't necessarily need to be the top pimp or the top athlete in any field. And like you mentioned, like Sweet in the end was he committed suicide. He committed so suicide. He didn't win. He, the power game was all a chance, all his attempt at winning the white man's game. And he cut his life short. And yeah, I mean, and in, and in some ways, like, you know, you could say, you know, in that scenario, the white man won. There's a part of the book that I loved because it was kind of that hunger that like, I'm going to make it no matter what. Even if I have to die, I'm going to pimp. Like, Oh, that's a great quote. The quote begins, What did this crippled flunky think I came here for? I knew I was slow. I sure didn't intend to stay slow. I was determined to maybe get as fast and slick as Sweet Jones, the boss pimp. If I blew the runt, it wouldn't be the end of the world. This poor crybaby had let Sweet's cross destroy him. I said, look, Preston, I got lots of heart. I'm not a punk. I've been to the joint twice. I did tough bits, but I didn't fall apart. I believe my whores love me in her freak way. I believe I got her. If I'm wrong and I blow her, so what? I won't give up no matter what happens. If I go stone blind, I'm still gonna pimp. If my props get cut off, I'll wheel myself on a wagon looking for a whore. I'm going to pimp or die. 
I'm not going to be a flunky in this white man's world. You can't convince me I can't pimp here. I know I can get my share of women to peddle. I'm going to get hit to what I don't know. I'm not afraid of sweet. I'm going to cut into him and pick his brain like a buzzard. And that drive, mm -hmm. that, and, it, and it's a drive that's not, I think, I think both of us may like not relate to that, to the exact, but relate to the sentiment of wanting to learn because that's what it was. He wasn't doing it out of hatred, even though he had very traumatic experiences. Even, even the, the pimp that his mom went for and the cat story and how he loved this cat. Oh, had, it's terrible. Yeah. He had the trauma to, under, to approach the game like sweet. Yeah. And then he, he was also business minded and he wanted money. He could have approached it like top, but from the get-go, his approach to the game, the, going back to that book, Mastery, I'm going to learn. No matter what happens, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn this game. And some, like reading that part, I remember the hunger of wanting to be like a, an amazing baseball player. And then once I started studying business, I still somewhat have that drive of wanting to be wealthy, no matter what I want to be wealthy, but then it toned down and then understanding the humane part. And that when I read that quote, it just stood out so much. Cause I could, I feel like any deep learner, any, anybody who really likes reading and appreciates art and wants to deep dive into what things mean. I think we all have that. And, that might've been one of the reasons why I like, I didn't read it so humanely was because I related to that drive. And when you're driven, he said, I'm, I'm going to pimp or die. It's not a good or a bad. It's I'm going to do this. And if I fail, I'm not going to do anything else. And there's something about that. that just was very. Well, it ties into the psychology, right? I mean, Unlike, unlike Glass Top and unlike Sweet Jones, the, there is this other underlying question of what actually motivates um, Slim to get into the pimping game to begin with. He had no real reason to get into pimping. You know, there's another storyline in the book we haven't talked about, which is, he gets sent on a full ride scholarship to Tuskegee. And it's, it's at Tuskegee that he decides that he's going to get into the pimp game, right? That he's going to start messing around with these women and trying to whore them out and all of this kind of stuff. And he essentially gives that up to go back to the North to get into the pimping game. And you have to think about like, well, what is it that drove him to give up this scholarship to go into the game of pimping? I don't know. It's just another part of the book that I thought, what's his actual motivation? Besides the fact that he grew up and, oh, this was the, this was the reason I was thinking about it. Because in that section of the book, he says something about social poisoning there's this, there's this language man in the book. And that's why, again, I'm like, I read it from such a social and psychological perspective. He refers to things as social poisoning. It's all in the book. The language is very intentional. And so he's saying like, this happened because my social circumstances led me into this. You know, I, I had Henry, this upstanding father, my mother went for Steve the pimp. I grew up in a pimping environment. It doesn't matter that you send me to Tuskegee. I learned pimping by watching people around me be in the pimp game. And I decided I was going to be a pimp. Oh, this is like another thing on page 11. When I walked away from her grave, I thought, I don't know, maybe that prison head shrinker was right when he told me I had become a pimp because of my unconscious hatred for my mother. And this goes back into like the whole thing about like what 
what really motivated Iceberg Slim to get into pimping. And there is this kind of undercurrent, again, psychology of the book, that it's like, did he do this pimping thing to get back at his mother or to control women, right? Like this idea that men get into the pimping business in order to control women and as a way of getting back at their mothers. So there's all kinds of control dynamics. There's all kinds of Freudian stuff that we could get into here that is probably beyond my educational level, but I mean, I, I can sense that it's like a part of the book. Tell me that I'm famous, tell me that my name is big as Venus, drooping during the Uranus, tell me that your anus got your head in it, I can smell the articles and know your heinous, tell me that you love me, always thinking of it, unconditional, I'm hoping I'm your favorite, grab a fishing pole and throw me with a shark, that's the feeling I get when you're concentrating no on this pin, on this pad, tell me you willing to disown my craft, tell me the feeling of picking apart this track. I was going to bring up something that you had mentioned in the in uh, your notes. Yeah. Um, kind of taking like a very different turn. Okay, a different turn, sure. But white women who come into town seeking sex with black men. Yep. White men looking for black women. On that first part, the white women who come into town seeking sex with black men, there is there some like a... Uh, two parts that kind of stuck out was first uh who was it i don't know if it was glass it was the uh it was party time when uh one of the first pimps that he like saw and he saw like he said like these two regular two like this square couple they look like not proper but they look regular like they had no part uh, being kind of in the streets, in the hood area, like, and they came down and the husband, like, asked party time to sleep with his wife and he was filming it and the power dynamics, even in that role, he mentioned, like, party time was like his gladiator and he, and he, like, he wanted him to conquer his wife or his girlfriend or, I don't know, the, the dynamics of the relationship but it, there was just so much power dynamics in every part of the book. And I, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on not particularly just that part, but that theme throughout the book. Well, it's a very important part of the book and it goes into, again, the way that there are dynamics and ties even to the slavery system. Uh, so, the question I kept having was, how is the book making a commentary on sexual dynamics between black people and white people, interracial dynamics? And of course, it's all about power, but it goes back to plantation politics and it goes back to slavery. And so this scene that you bring up where this white couple, this white married couple comes into the city and the white man pays the black man to essentially rape his wife, right? Because it's not, it's not just intercourse, it's violent intercourse. He's like telling her to do things. He's, the white man is telling the black man to do things to the white woman that are sexually violent. And so it harkens back to this fantasy that white people have about black men's sexual promiscuity, their sexual, all, all of the stuff about the way that white people conceptualize black people as hyper-masculine, hyper-sexual. And the, and the reason that people like Sweet and Iceberg Slim and all of, uh, and, and Glass are using black women in their stables to lure white men in is for the same reason that white men have this fantasy of black women as hypersexual, able to please you in a different way. And this is all through the book. There's even a scene where these, where these white women, this, this whole group of, of white housewives come into the city and Slim is like, what are these white women doing here? And 
it's either glass top or sweet or somebody is like, you know, don't worry about it. Like they're trying to live out their sexual fantasies by, you know, copying is the word they use, you know, capturing black men. To, Do you mind if I read? Uh, no, please read that. Yeah. So um, this was in the, in that part of the book where, um, Iceberg was asking Glasstop about just kind of the game and he was becoming socially aware of just the dynamics and um, Glasstop tells him they know enough on each other to keep all their jibs sealed. Ain't a chance for their husbands to tumble to what's going on. So what if some white joker who knows him made this scene and saw him? Every one of them is just slumming out with the girls. Jack, what they got is a secret sex club. I'm finding it quite um, shocking, uh, and maybe I shouldn't be shocked by this, the way that queer themes comes up in these books. And uh, there is so much queer theming in this book that uh, for a book that was written in 1969 um, is striking. But to go back to the whole thing about like white women coming into the city to try to get black men to come and sleep with them, there's this chapter with this uh, woman character named Melody, who her car breaks down and Iceberg Slim helps her fix the car and she takes him back to the suburbs, right? The white suburbs. And she ends up being a man. Uh, she was cross-dressing. Anyway, even that, is this whole thing about the way that even in the queer community, there's this kind of sexualization of the black body, sexualization of the body of color that happens with white people. And in this case, whether this person was transgender or whether they were a gay man, they had this sexual fantasy and, you know, he got roped into it in a particular type of way. So all through the book, sexual politics, the sexual economy, if you want to call it that, is just, it's ripe. It feels like from the preface that the book is supposed to fill a particular function to the reader. And I just, I wonder what you think the function of the book is. I mean, I want to read this, um, this quote from the preface because I think it's really important and it comes up at the front end of the book and then by the end of the book. And this is, it, it ties into one of your quotes too. So I'm gonna tie all this together. This is the preface. You know, Iceberg Slim says, perhaps my remorse for my ghastly life will diminish to the degree that within this one book, I have been allowed to purge myself. Perhaps one day I can win respect as a constructive human being. And, you know, tying to a quote that you, pull, uh, that you pulled out from, I think, page 11. Um, and I wonder if you'll read this quote, um, because I think it's an important quote, and I think they tie together. I agree. So the quote is, Mama, I haven't shot any H in 10 years. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a whore in five years. I have squared up. I work every day. How about it, mama? Iceberg slim, a square. You wouldn't believe it, mama. I wear $50 suits right off the rack and my car is 10 years old. You gotta believe it now, mama. Goodbye, mama. See you at Christmas. And remember, I'll always love you. Yeah, and then tied, and then to take it to the end of the book, right? page 296. This is like the one, the second to last page. Yeah. You know, Iceberg says, 
I tried hard to make up for all those years I had neglected her. It's hard to square an emotional debt. That last day she looked up into my eyes from the hospital bed. Forgive me, son, forgive me. Mama didn't know. I'm sorry. So what do you think his aim was in writing the book to begin with? What's his goal? I think as you were mentioning that first chapter with his uh, stepfather, something clicked in it. And so he starts the chapter and even in the glossary, I don't know if you like look through the glossary, but it's awesome, right? Oh, the glossary is so necessary. If you read this book and you're listening to the podcast and you read this, you have got to understand there's a glossary in the back because some of this language you just will not know. So the glossary is there. It helps you navigate through the text. And, and so some of the book or some of the terms in the glossary describe turning a square who is someone who lives life in the slow, just the slow paced, regular pace, regular living, day to day, kind of like working on things, just figuring things out. And the fast, the fast lane is the, is the underworld. It's trying to make money quick. It's all risk, all reward. The risk component, I think, was the purpose of this book. This flash is here to be attained, but if you do it in a way where you want everything quickly, it's not, it's not really yours. You just, you, you have it on loan. It, and you mentioning the first chapter of the book, the father that he said in, in one part of the book, like, Mama, I know you thought he was ugly, but he was the most beautiful man in my life. That idea of a father who's there. Who's oh, my God. And, and he was a slow living man. He did everything long term focus. He was a good, loving man. But his mom chased the fast life. Mm-hmm. He chased the pimp. She chased the flash. And then to come back around and to incorporate that quote, mama, I haven't shot H in 10 years. I haven't had a, fo- a whore in five. I'm a square, iceberg slim, a square. So to come back fully around, he lived the fast, he lived the fast life for 20 plus years. And then at the end, also with his mom saying she didn't know, and then him coming back around and almost being the man that his mom had left in the beginning, now being proud of living the slow life. I think that might've been the purpose because as, as, as a, who is this intended audience? It's probably young black males. And so the idea of, I can't get ahead in the world. My only oper- my only chance to get everything that I want is the fast life is all risk, all reward. And, and him at the end of the book saying, Essentially, the risk is not worth it. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's very complicated. You have to really think hard when you're reading the book about what is the book trying to tell me. And the reason that I would tell people to read the book, okay, is not because I want people to... There's a lot of violent language. There's a lot of terrible things that happen to people in the book. Uh, there's a lot of misogynist language, and it's not going to be a book that's easy for people to read who don't want to read about sexual violence, who don't want to read about physical violence, and the book is very blatant about all of those things. But the book is worth reading because it takes up the psychological questions of what happens to the human soul, the human psyche in states of isolation. It's not just what we just talked about. There are terrible scenes in the book that talk about the impacts of solitary confinement in prison, for example. I mean, this book could be in and of itself a book that should be read by people in criminal justice programs just about the way that prisons and the justice system works. You know, there are terrible things that happen to these characters. Um, These, 
I mean, based on real people in the book, they're kind of painted as characters or whatever. But, you know, there are these terrible psychological things that happen. This Oscar character, for example, that shows up in the book, who ends up getting put into solitary confinement because he steals an extra hot dog link from the lunch line, ends up, you know, getting his head rammed in, put into solitary confinement, and ends up basically going crazy, for lack of a better word, dipping his hands into human feces and painting with human feces on the wall of the cell. And Iceberg himself gets put into solitary confinement at the end. And what happens? He starts hearing voices, right? And and it, it, it like psychs him out. And he he does this whole psychological mind game to protect himself against the voices of being in solitary confinement for, I think, nine months or 11 months or something, like a very long period of time. So I just found all of that to be like, what is the book trying to tell me about that? How is it educating me about the dangers of isolation, whether you're isolated in a prison cell or whether you're isolated from people in a capitalist system that is supposedly teaching you that you have to manipulate your way to the top. There's no other way to survive the system. It's really kind of a messed up thing to think about. I was, I was super excited to be on the, like, on the podcast because it's, it's, it's part of the conversations that we've always had and we finally got to record one. And like, there, there's so many recommendations that I would say like, oh, based on your, like, your interests, I, I think you should read. But this was one of them that I was like, this could bring in a lot of different things. The fact that you're creating this platform for, for us to just like discuss ideas and how everything connects, like it, it's, a, it's a unique way of, le- of letting us be human. Like, cause we don't get this a lot. It's not viewed as productive. We, we've had conversation about productivity and GDP and is that even like the right measure for humane actions and I think this is one of those aspects that like it's 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 humane productivity we're, we're putting ideas out there we're stitching ideas together we're presenting new ideas it's yeah man it's well awesome. it's I mean first thank you and you know thank you for bringing the book to my attention, to all of our attention, because I don't think it's a book that many people, well, clearly it's been read by many people, but it was not part of my cognitive frame of reference. And that's one of the great things about the podcast and about the, I'm now referring to it as like a rhizomatic inquiry because, you know, this book I think is, essential reading now that I've read it. I mean, I just feel like it's so important for people to read this book. If you can see past the title, if you can see past the violence that's in the book, but not see past it to ignore it, because I think that we've spent a good bit of time talking about why even looking at those aspects of the book is important. But the underlying parts of this book, the themes that we've explored are really, really important. Edwin Cantu was born in Los Angeles, California, but raised in Mexico and Houston, Texas. Growing up, his older brother and his neighborhood had a huge influence on him. He went on to receive a scholarship which allowed him to earn a Bachelor of Business Administration in Entrepreneurship. Some of his favorite works of art are from Nipsey Hussle, Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, and Dave Chappelle. His career goal is to work within minority communities in the area of economic empowerment with the goal of helping communities build generational wealth. You can contact Edwin via email, edwin.cantu at ymail.com. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader. <laughs>